Welcome to Reproductive Left, produced by WERU in collaboration with Mabel Wadsworth Women's Health Center, a feminist, client-centered sexual and reproductive health care provider in Bangor, Maine. I'm your host, Abby Stroh. On each show, we tackle a topic that impacts our sexual and reproductive health by inviting members of our community who work specifically on the subject. Reproductive Left covers a variety of issues, including, but certainly not limited to, reproductive rights, feminism, access to services, sexuality, gender, and relationships. To wrap up our show, we answer your sexual and reproductive health questions in our Ask Mabel segment. Be sure to stick around for it. Hello, and thanks for listening. I'm thrilled to announce that joining me on today's show is Eliza Townsend, the executive director of the Maine Women's Lobby. In this interview, Eliza and I will discuss their efforts to raise awareness of the importance and impact of the federal courts. In September, she joined our Mabel Wadsworth Center's executive director, Andrea Irwin, on a discussion panel titled, Our Rights at Risk, Why Courts Matter. The thoughtful discussion aired on WERU's public affairs show, Main Currents, hosted by Amy Brown, on October 16th. If you missed it and you want more information following this interview, I encourage you to dig that up in the archives. Before moving into the interview, let's get to know Eliza and the Maine Women's Lobby a little bit better. Prior to joining the Maine Women's Lobby in 2011, Eliza represented part of Portland in the Maine House of Representatives for eight years. Then she moved into the nonprofit sector where she became the first executive director of the Maine League of Conservation Voters and Maine Conservation Voters Education Fund. During her tenure, the Conservation Voters convened the Environmental Priorities Coalition, comprising two dozen diverse groups that agree to and advocate for a common legislative agenda. Eliza left the Conservation Voters when she joined the Maine Department of Conservation, where she served first as Deputy Commissioner and later as Commissioner. Eliza's colleague, Dana Hayes, was on Reproductive Left about a year ago. And for us to get to know the lobby a little bit better before Eliza's interview, here is a clip from that interview. The Maine Women's Lobby was formed in 1978, and it was formed by a group of women who wanted to get funding for what was then called battered women's shelters. And they um, did all of the work legislatively to make sure that that would happen. And they worked with their legislators to get the bill all the way to the Appropriations Committee when there needed to be money appropriated for this particular issue. And those decisions are usually made, frankly, in the middle of the night, the end of session. And um, when they saw the final results, they found out that their funding had not been provided, that the Appropriations Committee did not... Um, give any money to quote-unquote battered women shelters and when they were asked what happened um, they were told that they didn't have somebody there that they weren't there in the middle of the night and so they said never again and so since then they have um, had a lobbyist in the halls of the state house advocating for women and that is my role now Um, and we have thousands of members and activists across the the state who support the work that we do. Um, And at the time, they raised enough money with $2 memberships to have a full-time lobbyist, and, and we've been there ever since. 
If you want to learn more about their lobbying efforts, you can listen to that full episode in the WERU archives or at soundcloud.com slash Mabel Wadsworth. You can also find us on iTunes or through whatever podcast app you use. And now let's get to the interview. Hi, Eliza. Thank you for being on Reproductive Left with me today to discuss why courts matter. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Um, you've been collaborating with a few other organizations, so Grandmothers for Reproductive Rights, ACLU of Maine, and Mabel Wadsworth Center on educational events focusing on the subject, Our Rights at Risk. Can you talk a little bit about why and how you started this project and what your goals are? We've been increasingly interested in the issue of the federal courts over the last few years because we are aware and we want to make sure that everyone who cares about public policy and about important issues in our lives is aware of the degree to which federal courts impact our lives. Because we're on reproductive left, one of the easiest cases to point to is Roe versus Wade, which established that the right to have an abortion, that abortion is a constitutional right based on privacy. But it was only in 1962 that the courts found that contraception was legal. Um, we have seen uh, cases subsequent to, the, to Roe versus Wade weaken, to some extent, that decision. Uh, the, the Casey decision in 1992 allowed restrictions on abortion, provided they don't pr- uh, constitute an undue burden. And that's a bit of a vague definition. So uh, those are some examples of the ways in which the courts affect our reproductive rights. But I think it's um, important to remember that they affect virtually every right that we have because they evaluate the constitutionality of laws. So our voting rights are shaped by the federal courts. They are, uh, they impact our access to health care, whether people who are Gay and lesbian have full constitutional rights, the right to have a same-sex marriage. These are examples of rights that have been impacted by our federal courts. And um, since we've gotten a little more deeply into the issue, uh, it's important to remind people that an appointment to a federal court is a lifetime appointment. And that means that the people who serve as judges may affect our rights for decades. That's why it matters so tremendously that we be paying attention, that we be aware of the situation and the issues related to the federal courts, and that we be keenly aware of uh, whether they are staffed and whether they are representing Americans. So speaking of whether they are staffed, one of the biggest concerns people are talking about is the vacancy on the Supreme Court. Um, Can you give our listeners an update on that? Yes. It has now been eight months since Judge Merrick Garland was nominated to fill the seat that was became empty when Justice Antonin Scalia died last winter. That's an unprecedented amount of time for a well-qualified nominee to wait. Not only has he not been confirmed, there has not been a hearing held on his qualification to serve, and none has been scheduled. Um, 
As we speak, the Senate is in recess. They will not meet again until after the election. So no action can take place on his nomination until after November 8th at, at the earliest. Um, and that has an enormous impact on Americans. That particular empty seat is just the tip of the iceberg across the system of federal courts that, that consider our rights in the United States. There are a total today of 108 vacant positions. Of those, 93 are current vacancies. The, uh, the remainder are uh, judges who've announced that they intend to retire, their future vacancies. Um, and they, what that means is that the remaining judges on each court where those vacancies exist have such high caseloads that they can't do their jobs properly. And the result is that Americans are not getting their day in court. They're not getting access to their fundamental right to justice. Um, in some cases, those remaining judges have such a high workload that they have been defined as a judicial emergency, and that's a proper formal term. Um, it's not one I'm making up. <laughs> um, there are 35 courts across the system with caseloads so high as to constitute a judicial emergency. So the situation is very serious. Um, as we, I mentioned, the Senate is in recess. There are 54 nominees, including Merrick Garland, that President Obama has put forward uh, to fill vacant positions. Of those, 25 are on the Senate floor awaiting a vote and have been waiting for some time, will not receive a vote until after the election. 29 are bottled up in the Judiciary Committee, and 21 of the nominees have not even gotten a hearing yet. So we have a broken congressional system that is keeping one of the three branches of government from doing its job properly. So I actually I read this morning that there's over 73,000 cases that are um, currently backlogged. And I'm wondering if you can, because of those vacancies, and I'm wondering if you can just talk a little bit more about how that is impacting Americans' everyday lives. So we need to remember that behind every lawsuit, every court case, are human beings. And the cases they may be bringing forward could have to do with whether they were discriminated against at work. They could have to do with immigration law, voting law, whether, um, whether one of the, the cases being considered by the current Supreme Court is whether uh, racial bias entered into a criminal trial. Um, the wide range of issues in our lives are affected by federal court cases. And since you are on Reproductive Left, do you mind talking a little bit more about how these impact um, access to reproductive health services or reproductive rights? Um, I'd be happy to. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we're, most of us who follow reproductive issues are well aware of a really great decision which took place earlier this year um, in a case called Whole Women's Health versus Hellerstedt. Uh, Whole Women's Health is a health clinic, not, not unlike Mabel Wadsworth Women's Health Clinic, located in Texas, which sued 
after it was uh, threatened by a state law in Texas, which would have imposed an undue burden, the, the, the attorneys argued, on women seeking access to health care. And that undue burden was that clinics in Texas were asked to, or directed, held to uh, have to meet physical standards as if they were hospitals. You work in this arena, and you know that there are other health procedures which are far more dangerous than mm-hmm. abortion. But um, So this meant the closure of many clinics because they, they simply couldn't afford to make the kinds of upgrades to, for instance, make sure that two gurneys could pass in a hall at the same time. Um, and that meant that thousands of Texas women could not gain access to health care. So we're, we're aware of that ruling, but an example of a case that did not receive a ruling because the court was understaffed was in the same session, the Supreme Court declined to rule in a case called Zubik versus Burwell. And that was a case um, which looked at the Affordable Care Act. As you know, one of the fundamental ideas behind the Affordable Care Act was seamless access to preventive health care, including ensuring that all women had access to contraception. In the prior session, the Supreme Court ruled in Hobby Lobby that a privately held corporation could refuse to allow its employees to have access through its health plan to certain types of contraception that it did not agree with. The Zubik case would have gone even further and extended that finding to an even larger group of employers. But because the Supreme Court was not fully staffed, they chose not to make a ruling, and they asked the parties to go back and find a compromise, which has not yet been reached. So that's an example of the fact that not having adequate numbers of judges, not having the ability, as you know, our courts are designed to, to have an uneven number of judges on them so that you can have a minority and a majority ruling. Uh, when it is, it has an even number, it currently has eight, that means it's harder <laughs> to get a clear answer. And that's just one example in the most visible court in our country. Now, you've been um, spending some time chatting with women, or your organization has been, this um, election season, listening to what what's bringing them to the polls, what issues matter to them as they're voting this year. And have they been naming the Supreme Court as a reason for them to get out to the polls? They have. We, we had, as you mentioned, an event earlier this spring, um, and I was not expecting to have a very large turnout. On It, it happened during the April vacation week. Um, I didn't think that a lot of people would be coming out that week to discuss the federal courts. We had well over 50 people in the room in Brunswick. Um, And you participated in an event a couple of weeks ago in which we had a smaller turnout. But people, it seemed to me, 
we're very well invested and very well informed on these issues. Further, we, um, our coalition had on hand uh, T-shirts that read Courts Matter to Me, which we've been handing out here and there over, over a couple of years. We now have a community organizer on staff, and she has been on college campuses, and they're getting snapped up. <laughs> so it's anecdotal evidence, but they're, these young women are saying to her as they grab the T-shirts that they're keenly aware of the federal courts, and specifically the Supreme Court, as they're thinking about voting this year. Um, and so just to bring up, the next president will have the potential of nominating four Supreme Court justices. Is that correct? That is. Um, it's potential. So the average age of retirement from the Supreme Court has been age 79. Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg is 83. Justice Kennedy is 80. And Justice Breyer is 78. Plus we have the empty seat to which Merrick Garland has been nominated uh, I think one question is whether, for instance, the Senate will take up Judge Garland's nomination after the election. There are a number of theories, but um, I think even our own Senator, Susan Collins, joked that should Hillary Clinton become elected, the other party may find Justice Judge Garland suddenly more appealing than mm-hmm. he was. <laughs> yeah. So there's some possibility that he may be confirmed prior to the inauguration of the next president. And we, of course, can't know, we can't read the minds of, of judges. But just based on history, it seems quite likely that one or another judge may retire. And of course, we had the experience earlier this winter of, of having Justice Scalia die very suddenly unexpectedly. So we can't predict the future and um, we're well advised to be thinking about the fact that the next president could nominate as many as four justices. And as you mentioned earlier, those are lifetime... Lifetime appointments. And so can you speak a little bit more to what that, um, what the lasting impacts of those nominations means? Yes, there's a really uh, fascinating article in the Atlantic Monthly currently uh, looking at this issue and suggesting that Congress has been so ineffective, so unable to reach agreement and to function as our legislative branch, that it puts more onus on our judicial branch and that both parties are now seeing it as an incredibly important part of policy making and either maintaining current law or working to undermine laws that you don't agree with. And for our listeners, if they want more information, um, do you have any resources or the Maine Women's Lobby website to, to get some more information about these topics? We do have information on our website, mainwomen.org. Um some websites that I find really helpful are the Alliance for Justice's website, afj.org. And um, there are, there's also courtsmatter.org. So a number of entities that are monitoring, um, looking both at, at the issues surrounding the courts, reminding us why we should be paying attention, and also telling us what's happening as Congress does or does not take up um, nominations. I, I wanted to mention that 
we focus particularly on access to contraception, access to abortion. There are a number, of course, much wider issues. And that's why it matters not only that we have represent adequate numbers of, of uh, judges doing their job, <laughs> taking up cases, providing Americans with access to justice, but it's also really important that we have a wide variety of personal and professional experiences represented on the courts. Justice Ginsburg has been pretty vocal about the fact that she sees the need for women on the courts. And when the court ruled uh, in a way that I disagreed with on the Hobby Lobby case, the three women justices were very, very angry. It was clear in their, in their dissent that they were um, greatly distressed by that ruling and that they were reacting to it from their own personal experiences. Um, each of us brings our personal experiences to the decisions that we make, and that happens as much at the courts as it does in the legislative process. So we need not only adequate numbers of judges, but we need judges who look like America. It's been really exciting that under President Obama, um, he has done more to diversify the bench than any other president, so that 43% of his nominees have been women, 36% have been non-white, and 14% have been gay or lesbian. And that's, that's a really valuable first step in making sure that the federal courts reflect what America looks like. Well, thank you, Eliza, for being on Reproductive Left with us today. That's all the time we have. We do have to move into our Ask Mabel segment, but um, I appreciated learning from you today. And I really appreciate the chance to talk to you about these issues. Thank you. Was there... Welcome to Ask Mabel with nurse practitioner Lindsay Piper. I have four questions for Lindsay today. In recognition of Breast Cancer Awareness Month, which ended yesterday, all of our questions today will be focused on breast cancer and breast exams. If you have a question for Ask Mabel, you can email educate at mabelwadsworth.org, and we promise to keep your questions confidential. Question number one, how often should we be getting breast exams? So that depends on who you ask. Um, There are different um, screening recommendations depending on the body of experts um, putting out the recommendations. So um, for women um, or people with breast tissue um, in their 20s to 30s, um, some bodies suggest doing every two to three years um, exam. And then when you're closer to your 30s and 40s, starting to do um, annual uh, breast exams. Um, So it depends on who you ask, I guess is the answer. (laughs) Now, in regards to self-breast exams, how often should we be doing self-breast exams and how how are they done? Um, So... We used to say it, it was general knowledge that um, doing a monthly self-breast exam was what was recommended for people. Uh, more recently, um, the U.S. Um, Preventative Services Task Force came out with the statement that there's 
quote, insufficient evidence to recommend um, people doing self-breast exams at all. Um, and then if you ask American College of Obstetrics and Gynecologists or American Cancer Society, um, they differ as well. Uh, American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology leaves it kind of general. And um, it said uh, self-breast exams can be recommended for anyone. And then it doesn't really say how often. And um, and then the American Cancer Society um, says still doing it monthly um, for people between the ages of 20 and 40. So usually what I tell my clients is that um, though there's not strong evidence to suggest that it decreases, um, you know, somebody's or the general um, rates of death of breast cancer, um, I think it's good to know what your body feels like um, and what's normal for you. So I do teach people, um, if they're interested at their office, at their office visit, how to do a self-breast exam. Um, and I don't say, oh, you have to do it every month, because um, a lot of people will come in, oh, I haven't, I don't do it as often as I should, and you know, kind of act like they're in trouble. Um, but that's not the case. I think knowing what's normal for you, and most people do examine their breasts at least a handful of times a year. And that's really what I tell people to do. And if they notice changes, then that's when they come in and see us. Um, so I will go over uh, kind of a brief tutorial, um, making sure that they're feeling all of the tissue um, from under the armpit over to the middle of the chest. And um, they can go like in a sun ray sort of uh, pattern or in a circular like spiral pattern. Um, making sure they're feeling all the tissue um, and hard lumps or bumps that feel like a rock or a frozen pea. Those are worrisome. If they don't move easily, if they feel kind of stuck to the tissue underneath, that's more worrisome. Um, any skin changes, you should go get checked out by your provider. Um, skin, like the texture changes. If you notice um, nipple discharge, it's not typically cancer, but it's good to have that evaluated as well. Um, and then if there's um, kind of ulceration or um, eczema-like skin around the nipple that's not improving, um, you know, get that evaluated also. So that's kind of my, that's really the spiel that I give people um, as I'm doing the breast exam. And then I'll, um, if people feel comfortable, have them touch their own breast tissue with the tips of their fingers. That's the most sensitive part of the finger um, so that they can feel what's normal. And I'll say, this is normal breast tissue. Oh, it's lumpy. Yep, breasts are lumpy. You know, and that's pretty typical for most people. Great. Um, the next question. So for transgender guys that do binding, so mm -hmm. to flatten their chest, um, does this increase a risk of breast cancer? There, I think there is sort of... Um, a thought that that might be the case because it's restricting lymphatic flow. Um, not enough research has been done to really make a strong correlation for that. Um, and so I guess what I would say is for people who have breast tissue, um, you know, get a chest exam, you know, or a breast exam or whatever, you, you know, you need. Um, examine the body parts according to the recommendations that are out there um, because we're still at risk regardless of um, what's going on and um, yeah so I don't know that it warrants increased screening um, but it certainly uh, means that one should continue to screen. And for transgender women do they also need breast exams? 
Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so the word on the street um, amongst providers who provide um, care to transgender women is that um, for those who are taking estrogen, um, we don't actually know if that puts you at increased risk for breast cancer. So we assume that you are at the same risk as all women, um, and we recommend doing breast exams, um, clinical breast exams, and then getting mammograms when you're in the right age category for that. Um, as far as trans women who uh, aren't taking estrogen, who don't have breast tissue, um, there aren't strong recommendations for having breast exams done. Well, those are all the questions I have for you today. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. That's it for today. Do you have a question for Ask Mabel? Simply email us at educate at mabelwadsworth.org. If you want to listen to past episodes of Reproductive Left, you can find us on weru.org in the archives. We're also on SoundCloud. That's soundcloud.com slash mabelwadsworth. And you can subscribe on iTunes or through whatever podcast app you use. Thanks for listening to Reproductive Left, produced in collaboration by WERU and Mabel Wadsworth Center. I'm Abby Strout, and please tune in next time, the first Tuesday of the month at 4.30, right here at Community Radio WERU, 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor, or online at WERU.org.